the muzzleloaders.com podcast, your source for all things muzzleloading. All right, everyone, welcome back to the muzzleloaders.com podcast. You are here with Caleb and Hunter and myself, Darren, and uh, we are going to be talking about some traditional muzzleloaders today. Uh, really excited to dive into that. We have a lot of good stuff for you. So uh, we're going to talk about some history behind some of these guns. We're going to be talking about applications for shooting, hunting, all kinds of different stuff that way. So uh, just really excited to be here with you guys today. Um, so with that, we're going to dive into the the meat of what we're talking about yep. today. Um, and Hunter, I know you are pretty well versed in your your history buff yourself. I know always <laughs> chatting about history with a lot of our customers that call in. And so um, I figured you'd want to take over the uh, the Kentucky rifle section of this and kind of go over some of the history that uh, you know led that to you know become one of the you know led it to where it is today. So. Okay, sure. Well, um, yeah. So the the history of the Kentucky rifle is pretty interesting. Um, it goes way back to the 1730s. Um, it's actually a uniquely American rifle, which I think is pretty neat. And I say rifle, which is a big uh, point of interest there because this is one of the first rifles. Uh, that was invented. There were some others, of course, in Europe as well, um, primarily out of Germany. Um, but the Kentucky rifle uh, was made in the colonial America, uh, actually by Germans who had immigrated here, which is kind of funny. So yeah. <laughs> um, they don't know exactly who made the first one, uh, but they know there was a number of gun shops that were manufacturing them in the 1730s uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so the original name of the gun was actually the American Long Rifle, it got its name because it has a ridiculously long barrel on it. So sure. a lot yeah. of the early ones uh, were like, you know, 40, almost 50 inches in some cases, some of them longer. Um, they really varied a lot. They were all custom guns, um, and they were all made for the purpose of hunting. So they invented them to basically give you something that you could actually hit game with at a, at a much longer distance than a smoothbore musket. Mm. Uh, a lot of the European countries at the time were really focusing on shortening the rifles or well the muskets rather mm-hmm. um and you know mostly military arms because of what was going on uh, historically at the time but um in colonial america the needs were different you know they were trying to survive they were trying to hunt hunting was actually very supplemental to uh, mm-hmm. a family's income at right. this time um, so that's why it really kind of took off in the states and of course then once you know the uh, french and indian war started uh, the American Revolution, of course, uh, the War of 1812, and even into the Civil War, these rifles were used uh, in a military fashion as well. But they really became famous, um, you know, during the American Revolution. That mm-hmm. was kind of the big, um, you know, mythology of it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of interesting that it ended up being called the Kentucky Rifle since it was made in Pennsylvania Yeah, mm-hmm. and started uh, off with the name of the American Long Rifle. Um, then it got the name the Pennsylvania Rifle, had a few other names, but landed on the Kentucky Rifle uh, mostly because there was a song, I believe, that was made about it. Mm. Um, and that's what they called it in the song, and that's what kind of stuck. So, uh, so that's what it's called now. Uh, most of the reproductions have a little bit shorter barrels, um, and they're smaller caliber. Usually... Those were like 60 to 70 caliber uh, back in the 1700s. But now, you know, for modern guns, they're usually like in the 50 caliber range or smaller even. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you mentioned uh, use for hunting. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was introduced in the 1730s, which is, you know, 40 or more years before the American Revolution when everybody thinks about, oh, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. You think about the American Revolution and the Kentucky long rifle, you Mm -hmm. know, and so... Um, but it was in use long before that. 
yeah. which I think really speaks to a lot of you know a lot of the really interesting stuff about the revolution is that you had just everyday citizens that were using what they had. You know, you had the Minutemen that yeah. had their you know their Kentucky long rifles for hunting, and um, and it's really interesting too because uh, warfare in the Revolutionary War was significantly different than warfare in previous wars. You know, there was a lot right. of like uh, more just like ambush, like spot attacks, things like that that changed. Uh, a lot of what was traditionally thought of as warfare at the time and the Kentucky long rifle had a, a lot to do with that being able to take longer range shots and ver- be very precise yeah and really and you mentioned you know kind of the guerrilla warfare aspect of um, warfare in the American Revolution which of course we could talk about that for hours but <laughs> sure. um, you know yeah because really the you know obviously the American army the colonial army and then later the French augmentation of the colonial army mm. Um, they just didn't have the numbers to to keep up with the British regulars. And so uh, they would fight in pitched battles, but really where the Kentucky rifle would come in um, handy was not in a pitched battle so much as mm-hmm. they would set those guys off into the side. So if you're, you know, if you're out in a field and there's, there's, you know, a forest lining it, they'd be out in the trees and they're shooting at officers, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to inflict terror, which is what the modern sniper does nowadays. Right. So these mm-hmm. guys were kind of the first American snipers. Um, and they were, you know, they were shooting officers. They were trying to inflict, um, casualties in a regard that would cause confusion amongst the ranks, uh, sure. the rank and file of the British military to try to help the pitched, you know, formation battle go in favor of the, you know, of the colonial army. But, um, yeah, so they did get used quite a bit for that. There was a lot of raiding, a lot of different stuff like that. They got used extensively in the Indian fighting too on mm-hmm. the frontier, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a you know militarily speaking. But yeah, really, <laughs> they were made primarily for hunting because they weren't very good um, for pitched battles. Mm-hmm. Reason why is because they're rifled, um, and as mm-hmm. many people listening to this probably know, um, it gets harder and harder to reload your gun if you don't clean it, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, big smooth bore with an undersized ball, which is what the military would be normally using. You can just keep reloading those things and keep shooting them. Um, and typically after a few volleys, you were using a bayonet anyway. And so, you know, you didn't shoot that many rounds, yeah. mm-hmm. but you know, with a, with a rifled gun, um, you know, your reload time is way slower, but mm-hmm. your trade-off is a lot better distance and accuracy. And so they weren't necessarily great for a formation battle, but they were mm-hmm. really good for uh, some of those guerrilla type of uses. Absolutely. And um, I do think it's interesting, you know, I keep coming back to the fact that it was developed for hunting purposes, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, I just think that's really interesting that, um, y- you know, when you're on the frontier and you have a bad crop year, yeah. you're, you're screwed unless you're right. able to supplement that with hunting or meat or whatever else is around and how important that was to uh, American history, even before the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. And so, and I know, uh, Caleb, if you want to talk about, um, I know it's really popular for hunting even these days. We have a lot oh, of, yeah. a lot mm-hmm. of people that call in wanting to, um, use it for hunting in modern times as well, both for like the, the challenge, but also the traditional aspect and things like that. So I don't sure if you want to speak to that at all. Oh, absolutely. Well, um, there's still a lot of great Kentucky rifles that are in modern production now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like Hunter mentioned, they are in smaller calibers, like 50 caliber or less. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, 50 cal for for hunting scenarios. And yeah, we get people flintlock and percussion style mm-hmm. um, taking them out into the woods, taking down a, a big white-tailed deer. Like that's that's still very very prevalent all across the country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because there's a lot of people. Um, we'll get more into this a lot later about yeah. the hunting aspect and stuff, but, um, and 
at uh, you know rendezvous and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's different competitions that require smaller calibers. So some like if you do a squirrel shoot, oftentimes it's 40 caliber and smaller. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to have you know the Kentucky long rifle as well as like the Crockett squirrel rifle. Yep. Some of those are in, available in lower calibers that uh, make it a little bit easier to do those competitions, which is tons of fun. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me uh, when I have been looking into you know just some of the history because you know everybody knows the history about the Kentucky long rifle, but I was doing some research before this podcast just to dig in a little bit deeper. That um, some of the some of these Kentucky long rifles were in use even as late as the Civil War, and there weren't many of them, but um, yeah. they were still using them at that point in time, even though it was obsolete technology, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was was super interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they there was actually a regiment in the confederate army um that actually they they were um, big into doing revolutionary war type of reenactments and stuff even back then which was kind of interesting Interesting. Um, but they more importantly they kind of formed like a civilian guard Mm -hmm. so it was like their militia but they had they had revolutionary war uniforms they used those rifles um and they actually fought in the first battle uh, of manassas in that full colonial regalia and everything um, so kind of a fun little niche of history right there using, um, you know, they had more uh, military style rifles, but yeah, well, kind of the same thing. A lot of the Southern, uh, you know, farmers and stuff, they didn't have military rifles. And obviously on the onset of the civil war, um, it was kind of a hurried, let's just get this thing going. So mm-hmm. kind of the same thing as the American revolution where people were just grabbing what they had, you know, yep. and, and using it. Um, a lot of these guns were uh, obviously they were all flintlocks originally, but a lot of them had been converted to have a percussion lock on them at that mm-hmm. time. So they were still percussion rifles, but yeah, still the same family guns passed down. They just yeah. upgraded them. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's super cool. I really enjoy, honestly, I, I didn't like school very much growing up, but, um, history was one of the things that I did really enjoy learning about. And I think, you know, American history is specifically very interesting because it pertains to what we do today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where we came from and, um, you know, it's really cool to uh, be a part of a community where you can purchase muzzleloaders, things like that, and you can go to rendezvous and you can almost re, you know, relive that, reminisce on that history and kind of where you, you know, oh, where yeah. your family comes from and stuff like that. So uh, it's just super interesting to be able to be a part of that. Um, so I think we're going to wrap up with the Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky rifle discussion here. We're going to move into the history of the Hawken, um, which is also very rich in history mm-hmm. and hunter we were chatting before the podcast talking about how um the hawken is it was introduced much later and so there's a little bit more detailed history of as to where it came from who invented mm-hmm. it things like that um and so for those of you that don't know there's a lot of stuff that goes into it um jacob and samuel hawken they were brothers and they came up with this idea for the Hawken rifle. They are, their father was actually a gunsmith as well and taught them how to do it, and they started up a business in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they uh, went on, and in the early 1800s, they decided to make a, you know, it, it was a planes rifle design, but it was made by them, and so they made it very popular. That's why, you know, you hear the the Lyman Great Plains and the Hawken. Mm-hmm. They're very similar in design, mm-hmm. um, but Hawken was known especially for their, they were known for their exceptional quality. Um, and yes. as well as using a slightly softer uh, iron in the or steel in the barrel to make it a little bit easier to load and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that, easier with fouling. Um, and so uh, they kept going. Uh, Jake Jacob Bridger actually, or Jacob Hawken actually ended up dying uh, in 1849, yeah. and his brother continued the business for about another decade before he sold it to um, 
JP Gimmer. And so you hear, you know, on our website, we have the Gimmer Hawking and stuff like that. So Gimmer, he actually, he ran the the business until 1915. So he ran yeah. it for a really long time and um, was producing a lot of uh, good stuff. He was able to replicate the quality. Everything was still good. Um, and then he passed, you know, he sold it, retired, uh, but still hung on to the, uh, the Hawken shop as if, if, as you will. Um, mm. and then when he passed away, uh, in the 1960s, it was acquired by a guy named, uh, Walter Kennedy and he gave it to his friend. Um, and his, his buddy was a huge fan of the Hawken rifle. So he felt obligated to, um, continue to make them, um, and produce them and, mm. So he, you know, did that for a little while, only made around around 30 of them before he closed down shop in the 80s. Mm. And then uh, he ended up selling it to a family in Washington who, to my knowledge, is still producing original Hawkins to this day. Oh, wow. Um, you know, that's as cool. from the research that I was doing. And so um, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's interesting that that piece of history lives on, you know, yeah. that something yeah. as, as famous as the Hawken is still around to this day in a place that's, you know, pretty close to us, honestly. Oh, They're yeah. just north of us in Washington. So mm-hmm. um, it's really interesting to, to learn up on that history and stuff like that. So, uh, and so Caleb, I wasn't sure if you wanted to chat about um, just some of the, the Hawkins that, you know, we have in the Plains Rifle, stuff like that. Some of the, you know, like the twist rate. I know the twist rate is different than like sure. the Kentucky Long Rifle, absolutely. how that's useful and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as far as the modern rifles that that we have and that we're familiar with um traditions makes a, a full line of hawkins style rifles um as well as the the long rifles like the kentucky or the pennsylvania rifle um but yeah the hawkin um twist rate is what you primarily mm. wanted to know about um are right at one in 48 yeah which <laughs> for all of those you know both sides of the spectrum if you're a modern inline hunter or a traditionalist you'll know that it's it's a lot slower twist rate than a modern mm-hmm. and a little bit slower than like the Kentucky who primarily uses round balls. Why that's important is the one in 48 is able to accommodate a round ball or a conical shaped bullet. Sure. So you're just expanding the types of projectiles you can use for whatever application you want to use it for. Um, and yeah, it's still able to stabilize both of those projectiles and take down game or go plinking or go to a rendezvous and shoot yeah. at some targets. You know, they're both very accurate. Yeah, and it's it's nice to have that versatility because yeah. when you get with when you go with the Kentucky rifle, you're looking at like one in sixty, and sometimes even slower, mm-hmm. which is really it's excellent for round balls, um, but it's a little bit slow to stabilize like a you know a mini ball um, design. And so um, when you go with the the Hawken, you're able to get kind of both of those, and um, that's what the Hawken was known for originally was being able to you know is accuracy and range, and so. Right. Um, and, and also the percussion cap ignition that was kind of state of the art technology at that point in time. Um, and so, um, well, to kind of elaborate on that. So, yeah. So the, the Hawkins were originally flintlock as well. Mm -hmm. A percussion cap really kind of took off kind of in the 1850s, um, and then going in, you know, later into the 1860s and stuff. Um, but a lot of the mountain men, which is kind of an interesting little side note that we're using it, which that's probably what a lot of folks you know, when they come to our store and want to buy a Hawk and, uh, I would say a good 
70 to 80% of the time is, yeah, that's the gun that Jeremiah Johnson had in the movies, <laughs> you know? And so, which the legend of Jeremiah Johnson actually is really what caused that Hawken to boom in like the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about 1970s and 80s and kind of the recent, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, refascination of the American people with that gun. Um, but yeah, the, the mountain men actually prim primarily stuck with the flintlock version because mm -hmm. they could find flints and they could hand nap them sure. and then they wouldn't have to buy expensive percussion caps that they'd still have to ship. We still have that problem, right? They're still expensive to ship through the <laughs> <Yeah>. mail. <laughs> so, and uh, hard to find. That's right, so. and very hard to find right now. But uh, they had the same problem back then for different reasons, of course. But, yeah, so most of them would stick with a flintlock. But, yes, they wow. did make them in the percussion models as well, and those, of course, became very popular, especially, you know, uh, for hunting applications, people who are recreationally hunting. Sure. Yeah, that's super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, that's something I actually didn't even learn in my research there. So, oh, sure. yeah, that's yeah. that's why you're here, Hunter. <laughs> they, our, our resident history buff. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, and honestly, I think that uh, both of these guns are super interesting. A lot of history behind them. And um, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to take a quick break. Um, and then we are going to go into kind of our next segment. We're going to talk about some of the uh, you know, some other guns that are around some other traditional guns, things like that. And then we will, um, continue on from there. So stick with us, appreciate y'all. And, uh, we'll be right back. All right. Thanks for joining us for that break. Um, we're going to be diving into some of the, uh, muzzleloaders produced by traditions who has done an excellent job keeping this history alive. Um, so Caleb, you want to go over some of those and then we're going to kind of just dive into some of them a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, Traditions Firearms has done a great job, um, like you said, just recreating these these household names like the Hawken and the Kentucky Rifles, which you guys talked about in the earlier segments. Um, a interesting rifle that, that I love that Traditions makes is the PA Pellet. Mm -hmm. um, the PA Pellet um, is by far the one of the best guns to use during the Pennsylvania flintlock season. Um, sure. yeah. And it is basically a modern flintlock rifle. Um, you have a wood or synthetic stock, um, but you have a flintlock ignition in it. So you can mm -hmm. still use pelletized powder and with the flintlock ignition, which is yeah. the only rifle that I know of that's capable of doing so. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you can still go have your authentic flintlock muzzleloader hunt um, wherever you're at, not just in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, and have that same great experience, but you're mm -hmm. doing it with a modern platform, modern frame. Um, you can use a conical bullet in there yep. um, as well as modern pelletized powder. Mm -hmm. And it has a removable breech plug too, which is nice for, oh, yeah. for keeping it clean and stuff. I think it's kind of fun that they've combined that traditional flintlock style yeah. mm -hmm. with a modern, you know, ignition, more modern ignition system with the pelletized power. So if you're yeah. just getting into muzzleloading, it's intimidating. There's a lot of stuff Yeah, like that's a super fun one that you can get started with that still gives you that authentic historical feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, it's available with, it's available in a, a variety. So there's some that like Caleb's that are more, you know, woodstock, more traditional. And there's some with like a, a Cerakoted barrel, mm -hmm. a synthetic stock. So really whatever you want to do, it's pretty, um, pretty awesome product they have there. And the removal breech plug is key because if you get a, a dry ball or anything like that, you know, it makes it easier to clean. It's just yeah. much more convenient to have that removable breech plug. Um, and so I know uh, muskets is something that are, are talked about uh, that Traditions yep. makes, uh, mm -hmm. as well as a lot of other brands. Petersoli makes a bunch of them. Um, and they have a key part in the history of our country, as well as a lot of other countries, as, uh, too. So, Hunter, you want to dive into some of those, you know, some of the history sure. behind that as well? Sure. Well, I'll just kind of hit on maybe some of the more popular ones that be, you know, 
kind of more mainstream in the United States, um, you know, like your Springfield series. So we've carried, I think we've got the 1842s, the 1858s, and I think we've got 1861 as well. Mm -hmm. Carry a 58 Zouave. Uh, so there's a lot of cool guns that were utilized through the Civil War era. Um, and Traditions and Pedersoli both make uh, variations of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe the Pedersoli ones are actually um, their North-South Shooters Association um, verified. So you can utilize those for reenactments and stuff like that cool. too. Um, and, you know, the Traditions guns uh, are very similar. I don't know if they are certified or not, so you'd have to check on that. But um, I know if you're interested in doing the reenactment purposes, you know, both of those companies are making some really cool guns. And of course, most everybody's pretty familiar with the 1861 Springfield. That's kind of the staple gun for the Civil War era. Uh, you know, the 1855, they really kicked off. Um, well, that was the first year that they adopted a rifled um, standard issue musket for the United States military. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a 1855 Springfield, and then they progressed it to 1861. Um, and that was kind of the standard issue throughout the Civil War because that's when, obviously, the war started. Um, by the end of it, both sides were pretty much using the same thing. The Confederates had what they called a Richmond or a Richmond Type Three rifle, um, which is basically the same thing, but it was made in Richmond, so they called it something different. So uh, very similar guns, though. Um, shot the same bullets and everything. So, um, yeah, so those are some cool ones that are offered and I think really bring the the living history of the civil war back to life. Mm -hmm. I think those reenactments and along with the rendezvous, you know, that's the whole, the whole point of those exercises is to really bring that back to life for people. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we get a lot of, a lot of people who are participating in both of those events that we get to visit with and, um, strongly encourage you to, to jump into some of those. If you're interested, super welcoming communities that are awesome folks. Yeah. It's a ton of fun. And, um, I know kits are something that's really popular. We've seen a lot of, um, a lot of people that are looking to do traditional stuff by uh, purchase kits because they just mm -hmm. want to build it themselves. You know, there's something about the customization. Um, we've seen a lot of customers that have done like custom engravings and all kinds of cool stuff uh, on those kits. And so, and Hunter, I know that you uh, built a Kentucky rifle kit here a couple of years back. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering if you want to talk about your experience with that some. Yeah, sure. So I built uh, the Traditions Kentucky rifle kit, the percussion model. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun build, actually. It took I, I took my time, so it took me probably a week or two to put it together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, actual build time, I would say, you know, if you really just wanted to hammer something out, you could get one of those built in probably three or four days. Um, but, you know, if you want kind of spread it out, make it a project, you know, yeah. and you can make it as elaborate as you want. That's what's cool. So they added, they have enough wood on the stocks. They just rough cut them. So there's plenty of excess wood. If you want to shave, you know, different areas off, kind of reshape the stock a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you want to engrave it or carve things into it, there's opportunity for that. Sure. Um, and I know there's, they're thick enough as well. So if you want to add like a patch box, which I know yeah. they have the deluxe Kentucky rifle kit now, which they didn't have that when I was building mine, but um, you can, you know, you could do that uh, or you can get the deluxe version, which already has it cut out. And so you can build it that way too. But um, yeah. And then it's a, it's a very user-friendly process. I really only had to use, um, you need sandpaper for the stock. Mm -hmm. um, you need a couple of screwdrivers, you know, to attach some of the different parts. Um, you do need a drill for the Kentucky rifle because you do have to drill the, the stock the four stock and there's two uh wedges that you hammer into the bottom of the barrel that you're going to drive tenon pins through mm -hmm. and you do have to drill through those so that's probably the trickiest part of the build i get a lot of people that call me and ask how to do that 
I recommend just putting the stock together with the barrel, mm-hmm. measuring that out, figuring out where the center of those wedges are intersecting with the stock, and then just drill them all at the same time. Then you get a nice straight uh, punch mm-hmm. through there and don't have to worry about trying to line it up later. So uh, that was probably the trickiest part of the build. You do blue the barrel yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so just make sure you don't get the bluing down the barrel. <laughs> so mm-hmm. sure. you can clean it up. Not a big deal. I got a little bit down mine. Um, and you know, it, it buffs out just fine, but it will rust it obviously. Cause that's the whole point of the bluing process. Mm-hmm. So just make sure you get it really good and cleaned out if you do get some down the barrel. But, um, yeah, super fun process. I had a great time. I actually built it with my dad. I thought it'd be kind of a fun project for us to work on together. Sure. So, yeah. um, yeah, we, we put that together a couple summers ago. It's, it's been awesome. Um, I actually have it hanging up on my living room wall right now. So <laughs> yeah, tons of fun. And I think that, um, you know, there's just, there's really limitless, you know, it's like Legos for adults, you know, there's really, limitless. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's limitless options that you can do with that, you know? Mm-hmm. And the nice thing is when you're done, you get a fully functional rifle that you can hunt with. You can take to the range mm-hmm. rendezvous reenactment, whatever you want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's super cool what you're able to do with those. One thing I do have a lot of customers ask me who have never built one is, Hey, like, I don't know what I'm doing at all. Am I going to be able to actually put this together? Mm, and yeah. is it going to be safe to shoot a hundred percent? Yes. Um, mm. there's, there are some limited instructions that come with it. We have some good videos on YouTube though, that can help you walk through yeah. the process. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, of course, good customer knowledge and experience for you. So you can give us a call. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're very user-friendly to put together and they're, they're perfectly safe. Um, you'd be pretty hard pressed to really ruin it. And if you do mess up part of it, traditions is awesome about getting your replacement stuff too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, going into, you know, some of our experiences shooting those, um, I, I met most of my experiences come from the, uh, the Great Plains Hunter, the Lyman Great Plains Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, which I was, I'm very happy with. It's a great rifle. Um, it's accurate. I have the, uh, you know, it's percussion, the mm-hmm. one that I have. And so it's just, yeah, I think that really shooting traditional, it's a completely different ball game than inlines. Um, Cause I, you know, we, I think, you know, we all have a lot of experience with inlines and traditional muzzleloading is just a, it's a different thing to do. Um, yeah. You know, there's a, you really have to be cautious about what you're doing because, you know, if you get a dry ball, for instance, yeah. or something like that, it's much more of a pain in the butt than just removing the breech plug and pushing it out <laughs> the breech, right. you know. Um, but that's kind of the that's kind of the charm of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you have a piece of art. Yeah. And you're able to take it and shoot it, which is probably the most American thing I've ever ever heard of in my life. You know, <laughs> America. That's yeah. right. That's right. We have a piece of art that we can shoot. There you, you know? go. And so um, but and I know that we have lots of, uh, you know, feedback from our community of people that are shooting guns like that for all sorts of different purposes. And I wasn't sure what some of your guys' experiences have been with that. Like, you know, with, you know, some of our con- you know consumers, things like that. I would just say as a whole, um, while the flintlock and percussion, you know, there's, there's a good chunk that like either, or there is nothing like shooting a flintlock rifle and waiting for that, you know, the <laughs> hammer to fall, the spark, and then boom, this huge yep. white pl- plume of smoke out the barrel and kind of in your face too, yeah, which is band. just, yeah, it's just so, um, there's no experience like it. It is, it is literally a hoot. And I know yeah. um, that's kind of, I've seen so many customers get into muzzleloading. They get into inline muzzleloading and they're like, hey, I want, I want that, that authenticity. I want even more experience. And then they go really deep into the traditional style yeah. and dive into flintlock. Like I want to get as historic as I can get that, that great experience. And yeah, there's nothing like that, that huge plume of white smoke out the into your barrel, which y- 
you you kind of get with the modern rifle, but it's there's just something about you know it's out different. of a flintlock rifle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think because the traditional style guns they don't have those you know really modern tight fitting projectiles, yeah. and so the pressure's not as high, so the burn rate's not as good, mm-hmm. and so you get way more smoke yeah. out of them too because it's like it's still kind of burning <laughs> as it's going out <laughs> the barrel. So sure, yeah, uh, which is fun, but yeah, uh, obviously you don't shoot as much powder out of them. But I actually have talked to a number of people that uh, have inline muzzleloader hunted for years. Their states allow it. Um, and they're going, hey, I want to challenge myself yeah. even further. So I'm switching over to the traditional, like mm-hmm. the real old school guns. So yeah. I've talked to people that have gone from inline to percussion. Now they're doing flintlock. Like, man, what's next? They're going to be throwing yeah. knives at these things, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. I think yeah. it's great. So, And I think that's, you know, we talked about that some in our in our first podcast, mm-hmm. but um you know, there's, there's this, uh, trend of people like, you know, when you start first start hunting, you might start with a rifle and then you're like, Oh, this is really fun. So then you you know start reloading your own ammunition, you know, and you go a little more in depth or archery, you know, you start with a compound bow, mm-hmm. you start hunting and then you start and you're like, Oh, this is, you know, you get that down and you're like, I want another challenge. You go to like a traditional bow and it's the same thing with muzzle loading. You know, yeah. it's your, mm-hmm. you start with like an inline, um, and then you kind of like, Oh, this is really fun. Let's increase the challenge and let's go mm-hmm. with you know, a traditional and then you're yeah. like, oh, like a percussion and then let's go to Flintlock and see, let's see how difficult yeah. we can make it. You know, um, I think that's super fun. I think I it's do. cool that there's a lot of, you know, different, there's something for everybody, you mm-hmm. know, I'm excited that people are getting back into the oh, yeah. historical guns too. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, I've loved those things. I've, I grew up watching all the Westerns and even, you yep. know, the older, you know, I, like Gettysburg is probably one of my top five, probably top three. I watched that movie so many times growing sure. up. And, you know, which is all those old muskets. Uh, so it's awesome. I, I'm really glad people are getting more into it. It's it's picking up a lot of steam mm-hmm. um, and, and people are getting excited about it and realizing how fun it is. Oh, yeah. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. And we were just we were just watching Westerns in here the other day. We so. were. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's what we do. Muzzlers.com. We watch Westerns and <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So uh, moving on, let's go ahead and do our, our tech tip of the day. Um, and I'm going to do this one cause I did something kind of foolish the other day <laughs> and I, uh, did, I did a dry ball. Um, and so we want to talk about, you know, ways to remove that because, um, there's a few different ways. Uh, the first one and the one that I went with is a bullet puller just because it's the simplest, easiest way to do it. Um, and so essentially a bullet puller is like a little, like a screw that you thread into your, your ramrod. And, uh, one key thing about that is when you are threading it in there, there's a little brass piece and you have to make sure that brass piece is really tight up against the ramrod. Otherwise, when you drop it down the barrel and are you know, screwing it into the round ball, you're going to just thread it more into the ramrod. It's not gonna actually grip the ball at all. And hmm. so you have to make sure that is really tightened down there. Otherwise, it's not gonna be effective at all. Um, so that's a little tip, something I learned the hard way. Um, and, um, <laughs> so that, that's one way. Another way is we've seen CO2 dischargers, which are yep. really, um, popular and really easy to use. Uh, you don't have to fight with a bullet puller. Yeah. You know, you just have a little CO2 canister and it, you know, shoots it right on out of there. You just um, put it on the nipple and then. Y- yeah. And I think, I think Caleb, you had some, some knowledge on how that works. So I wanted to see if maybe you wanted to go. Yeah. How it, it's simple as that for the percussion. You literally just put it over the nipple and it has a little, like you said, a little CO2 charge and push, it discharges and mm-hmm. that's, that's all the pressure it needs. It, it seems kind of weird that it would even expel a round ball, but they do a great job and yeah, they're very, very popular. 
Um, and I believe you can still use them on a flintlock muzzleloader. I think there's a little, uh, like kind of a little rob, uh, rubber nozzle tip that you can put into the uh, touch hole. And then Correct. that will mm. do it as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no matter what traditional style gun you're using, the yeah CO2 discharge dischargers, I think they're hard to find right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're very handy for any muzzleloader application. So yeah. what isn't hard to find right now? I, mean. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Darren, if you don't mind, I... Like I've heard like a, like a stuck ball or, you know, stuck projectile. So a dry ball that, could you explain that? Like, how do yeah. you, how do you even get that in a Absol- muzzle? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, that's a term <laughs> that I learned because I, you know, what happens is if you, you know, are getting excited and cause as, as one does when you shoot a muzzleloader <laughs> and you push a round ball down without pouring the powder, then when you, well, either, you know, you have your flintlock, which ignites the pan powder, or in my case, you had a percussion cap, there's nothing to ignite. So the, the ball doesn't leave the barrel. And so it just sits there and you're like, man, what's going on here? And you fire a few caps and you're like, man, did I forget to put powder down the barrel? Mm. And you're like, it's really, it's really, the worst part is when you come back to, to work and all your coworkers are making fun of you. <laughs> we would never do such a thing. Sure. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a silly thing. Um, but you know, as with all problems, you find a solution. And uh, those are just a couple of the ways that we have found to uh, do that. Cause it happens, you know, it happens. Sometimes you get going and you just, forget to put powder down the barrel, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so a little so. pro tip to also make sure you're really paying attention when you're loading your muzzle. That's true. It's true. Yeah. That's honestly a dry ball is one of the safest things you can do. You know, yeah. if you do something else, like don't pack it down all the way, or, you know, you get your bullet starter and you don't pack it down with the ramrod. There's lots of things you could forget. Double loading, you double know? loading. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of things more dangerous than a dry ball, but, um, you know, the dry balls a pain in the butt, but not that big of a deal. You can get it figured out. So, um, Yeah, so let's go ahead and take another quick break, and then we will move into some of the fun stuff like uh, talking about rendezvous, more traditional shooting, um, stuff like that. So stay tuned. All right, thanks for sticking with us through that break. Um, We're going to move into some of the fun stuff, traditional shooting. Um, And so I wanted to talk about, uh, I just actually had the chance to go to the Elkhorn Rendezvous uh, this past weekend, which was so much fun. I honestly like can't even, I can't really communicate how much fun it was because it's the most, it's a very unique experience to be at a rendezvous. And so, um, you know, there's tomahawks, there's knives, there's shooting black powder, there's black powder pistols, all kinds of different events. And so, and one of the, my favorite things about that, and we've mentioned this in previous podcasts about, um, the, the community of people that are into traditional yeah. muzzle loading. And it's just, they are just the, some of the best people you'll ever meet. You know, everybody there at that rendezvous, they were all just kind. They were all helpful. Um, and it's like that at, at every rendezvous, you know, there's everybody's just such a, it's such a, a unique group of people. Mm. And, um, you know, there's just nothing better than going out in the middle of nowhere. And it's really just, you know, it, it's like Hunter was saying, it's revi- revitalizing that, that history. And, um, you know, you're living life at a slower pace when you're at a rendezvous, you know, it's just, you know, our daily lives are just boom, boom, boom. We got podcasts to record. We got, you know, customers (laughs) on the phone. We got to get this stuff going. And then, um, when you're at a rendezvous, you know, you, you turn your phone off, you're hanging out with people and you're just walking to different events and it's just slow, you know, it's just like taking a breath of fresh air, just Mm -hmm. like it would be in those times before the internet, you know, before you had things going on, you're just 
it's just it's it's the way that life was meant to be lived. I think you and know, they're and family friendly events oh, too, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was there was lots of kids there. There was uh, you know a lot of the guys brought their wives and there's stuff to do there, um, and just really just an excellent group of people. And if you haven't been to a rendezvous, like if you're into muzzleloading, if you're listening to this podcast for however long we've been recording, then you're probably into it, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and you haven't been to a rendezvous, definitely check it out. They're starting to start those back up. You know, they were shut down for a long time because of COVID, which is sad, but they're starting to bring those back up and definitely check it out. They're not expensive to go to. I think it was like, like 20 bucks for me to go there. Wow. Plus, you know, round balls are cheap, you yeah. know, and it's like, just, just go check it out. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is you hate it, but I promise you won't. Like, it's just a, it's an excellent time and um you know there's nothing better than throwing tomahawks and and shooting black powder to be honest with you so (laughs) and the people there want you to enjoy it because they're passionate about what they're doing Mm -hmm. and they want to spread that passion you know to more people yeah and so that you know i think a lot of people get a little intimidated getting into shooting Mm -hmm. sports Mm -hmm. thinking like oh it's like these like Know, gruff men who don't sure. really want to talk to people just to shoot guns you know it's like yeah. no that's not it at all like it's mm. a lot of really friendly people who are super eager to teach you what they know too mm-hmm. uh, which is awesome so if you're just getting started that's a great place to go and learn some good stuff too yeah and i think that's i'm glad you touched on that because they're also very giving like you know mm-hmm. if there was something that that you know i'd forgotten or whatever then there's like 10 people lined up like oh let me give you this let me give this to you you know and Mm. um you know just really just giving people and um a great great atmosphere and that honestly like you know my first rendezvous i was you know very intimidated like man these you know you don't know what you're getting into you're like these people are dressing up and what's going on and um like hunter said it's easy to be intimidated by something you've never done before but really it's they're just the the people there are so helpful so kind and you know not judgmental whatsoever and so um just really highly recommend checking that out um and so and you know reenactments a lot are the same way too you know just people that care about culture people that care about history and want people you know and they want people they want they want it to grow they want more people to be involved and so Mm -hmm. they're very um they have that mindset about it they want to make sure it grows which you know is just such an awesome thing to do um and so i know that those are popular pretty much everywhere um but traditional hunting in general um that's kind of spotty like we've seen lots of people that are just diehards you know they will they'll do it in any state and then we have other states like pennsylvania that have a flintlock only season Mm -hmm. and so caleb i was wondering if you wanted to kind of dive a little more deeper into the hunting side of things for muzzleloading oh absolutely well there's always going to be the half of you know if you if you wanted to split the muzzleloader customer base or just hunter shooter rendezvous base that there's always going to be a huge chunk that does the traditional and a huge chunk that does the modern center mm-hmm. fire and so all 50 states we've seen people get out of flintlock get out of percussion and go you know do what they do um pennsylvania of course is probably one of our our um just the biggest states that dive into it, like as you stated, they have a very specific flintlock season, mm-hmm. very special. Um, you know, obviously traditions, firearms made guns specifically for that season as well. Um, but I've, I've even sold um, or chatted with a guy over in Hawaii mm-hmm. who just needed a really short range round ball application because they have those wild hogs over there oh, yeah. that are just pests. And, yeah. you know, there's some areas where there's a lot of, you know, a, a more compact population of people and so hey i need something really short range sure. i have a big pig problem and so that was one of the more unique 
hunting applications that I got to to help out with was mm-hmm. was sending a couple flintlock rifles or percussion rifles to Hawaii, which mm-hmm. was nice. So yeah, that's that's actually interesting because Hawaii has a lot of really interesting hunting over there. Oh, yeah, they you do. can you can do a lot of hunting. You know, you don't usually think about Hawaii as being a hunting destination, yeah. but uh, it's more about beaches and sun, but the there's a lot of good hunting you can do there yeah and um so i'm glad you mentioned that's that's really interesting um but i think do yeah that's true there's actually a lot of really interesting hunting opportunities across (laughs) the country um Mm -hmm. you know i've actually done digging into pretty much all of those um because we put that up on our website um just as a resource for people for different state hunting regulations and Mm -hmm. there's a ton of muzzleloader seasons all over the place um and a lot of people don't know about them yeah and so those are and they're usually good hunts they're like in the rut yeah, uh, there are good times of the year where the weather's not horrible sometimes yeah. too. Some of them in the middle of the winter time, but um, a lot of them are, you know, that early fall yeah. when the deer and the elk are coming into the rut. Yeah. So you have a really good hunting opportunity there too, which is awesome. Well, I like that you brought that up too, Hunter, because I know we get a lot of people who are just centerfire rifles. They're mm-hmm. like, I want to extend my season. I'm going to get into muzzle loading because like you said, there, there's a lot of very, very prime early fall in the fall muzzleloader seasons that you don't get to in center fire mm-hmm. rifle. Right. And because muzzleloading is, it's still very popular, but not as many people do it as center fire. So you kind of have the forest to yourself sometimes in certain areas. And that's just a big appeal. It's like, I want to go out by myself and take down a, a big white tail. Um, and I have three weeks to do it in some areas. So yeah. yeah. And I think it's actually, ironically, um, I think there's more people that archery hunt than muzzleloader hunt in a mm-hmm. lot of these oh, places yeah. too. Cause I've actually talked to a lot of archery hunters that are going, Hey, like the archery season's getting overcrowded. Sure. Um, and they're switching over to muzzleloader because yeah. it's very similar time frame to the archery season. Um, but you know, not as many people are doing it. It's just, it's kind of a well-kept secret. Mm-hmm. Of course we're kind of ruining that now, I suppose, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, which I think it's okay. Cause a lot of people, uh, you know, I think would really enjoy getting into it. And there's plenty of room. There's yeah. lots of good hunts out there. Well, and I, you know, you speak about the rut. Uh, I just put in for a tag yesterday. Uh, I put in for all my tags and I, I love black powder hunting. I love, you know, all really hunting is just what I love all of all kinds. You know, I'm an archery elk hunt this year. And, mm-hmm. um, but you know, so I kind of look at hunting a little more objectively, like what's the best hunt. And really mm-hmm. I found that in my area, the, you know, our local, it's actually like a county based yeah. whitetail hunt and it's right in the middle of the rut, you know, so you can rattle them in. I was like, man, this, this is going to be a great, really fun hunt. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to put in for it. We're going to do it. And it's you know almost a guaranteed draw. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's something if, if you're looking for out of state hunting, there's a lot of people because out of state hunting is becoming a really big deal. Yeah. Um, look into muzzleloader hunting because yeah. there's lots of tags available and usually they're, they're much easier to draw than, um, you know, a lot of your center fire or even mm-hmm. archery tags. Mm-hmm. So, um, and really good success rate. Like Hunter said, you know, they're trying to, they're trying, you know, states are trying to sell more of those tags. So they put them right in the middle of the rut and, uh, allows you to get really close, which is super nice, you know, especially when you're using muzzle loaders. So, mm-hmm. um, and the traditional aspect of that is, is really fun. You know, you're able to hunt like you know we're talking the 1730s they were using the kentucky long rifle to hunt you're able to do that you know you're able to relive that and that's just that's just really cool you know know, and on a practical note too why the inlines are great as well for some of those closer range applications some of the traditional guns actually make more sense Mm -hmm. uh, for those purposes um you know because there's times where an open sight gun you're going to be within 10 or 20 yards you know and it's 
yeah they're quick to put up they have just you know low profile iron sights so you can just see the animal really well too mm -hmm. which is nice mm -hmm. fiber optic sights are great but let's be honest they block up a ton of the animal so it's harder to see especially the further out they yeah. get so some of those low profile sites which pretty much all these guns are equipped with mm -hmm. um, are much faster target acquisition and you can actually see a whole lot more of the animal exactly so there is an advantage there too which is interesting yeah yeah and it's just yeah i mean really there's our whole goal behind doing this podcast and behind our company in general is to just share with you guys how awesome muzzleloading is yeah. and how much fun it really is. And it's not an outdated old codgers do it and, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like, it's fun for people of all ages, kids, all the way until you're old and on your deathbed. You know, muzzleloading is for everyone, and it's a ton of fun. And I just really can't communicate how much fun it is. And there's all kinds of shoots. Like, there's really competitive shooting mm -hmm. that takes place too like the nmlra um they're doing their national shoot in june and uh you know that's a competitive shoot like there's that's a serious thing mm -hmm. um and, and some really good marksmen go to those shoots yeah too. It's, it's hard impressive. you yeah. know it's not like just a bunch of people that randomly sign up like it's a challenge no they're really good yeah. and um and i believe they do paper targets too so you actually have to group well it's not mm -hmm. just about hitting a metal gong oh yeah, yeah. you're actually having to group well mm. so um really just there's a there's so much for so many people in muzzle loading um and that's really what i want to leave you guys with today is the fact that there's just there's something for everyone today we focused on traditional tomorrow we'll be doing whatever but just know that there's something for everybody here and it's we really encourage you guys to get into it and it's just a ton of fun and so um with that let's move to product of the day and then we'll kind of wrap things up so, Caleb, you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about our muzzleloaders.com authentic 18th century flints. Um, and, you know, flints are just an amazing piece of, I was going to say technology, but it's actually, it's literally a piece of rock that you're using <laughs> to ignite your powder in a muzzleloader. And so, which is just amazing. It's outstanding that mm -hmm. we can do that. Um, and so, yeah, our um, authentic 18th century flints are actually from the famous Nepalese cash, mm -hmm. um, historically made by the English and French. Um, and we have a, a large availability of them. So if you're looking for flints, they're easy. We have um, a good store of them. Um, and so I know that that's been, it's been hard to find flints, even a piece yes. of rock hard to find in mm -hmm. in 2020, 2021. That's actually been going on for quite a long exactly. time. We didn't yeah. have flints for I mean, 2019 too, it was hard to find. Oh, well. absolutely. Yeah, so. so yeah, just want to say like really cool historic, um, or yeah, pieces of history. Literally. Um, yeah. and they're available. Uh, we have plenty of them and, um, yeah, any, any flintlock application you use, whether it be like a musket or, you know, all the way down to the Hawken rifles that we talked about. Um, I did want to also point out that the, the flints that we have, um, they're all unique. Mm -hmm. They're all hand napped historically. You may need to nap them down further, which is which has always been common practice, mm -hmm. you know, for other types of flints too. So, oh, yeah. you know, even if it's like, hey, this flint is a little bit too big, you can hand nap it down from there and, you know, make it fit whatever personal size that you need for your muzzleloader. And there's some good resources on YouTube as well yeah. if you need to learn yeah. how to do that. Um, it's a very easy process to nap those down. Uh, you know, you're probably going to make a few mistakes here and there. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of part of the process. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what's cool about them, uh, you keep mentioning the history of them, that they were literally made in the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, these, these aren't historical reproductions. These are literally mm -hmm. from the 18th century. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're actually holding something that somebody a couple hundred years ago <laughs> napped. 
Which yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. And I mean, it just adds to, you know, that, that often, you know, the history of it, the authenticity. And so, um, yeah. And, and like Caleb said, availability is a crucial thing about those. And so, you know, check them out. They're, they're a great Flint. Um, and with that, I really appreciate you guys listening today, um, listening to our, our nonsense and babbling. And, uh, we hope you join us next week. We're going to be, got a lot more, uh, awesome stuff we're going to be going over and, um, we will chat with you soon. 